welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. You do that by listening to these valuable interviews. And also, I provide specific online training for you to make your move from product manager to product master. Check out the training at the same place where you'll find the show notes for this episode. And that's the everydayinnovator.com slash 138. Now, much of the advice we've been told about achievement as a product manager and innovator is logical, earnest, and perhaps downright wrong. My guest, Eric Barker, explores the science of success. Success items that apply to us as product managers and innovators, as well as to others too. And in his book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, Eric reveals the science behind what actually determines success, and most importantly, how you can achieve it also. Eric also has a popular blog by the same name as his book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, that shares science-based answers and expert insights on how to be awesome. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Eric, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thank you. So I wanted to start our discussion by just first telling listeners where they can find out about your blog, because you bring these great science-based insights to people in terms of how can we be more successful in work and our life. Let's go there first so people know where to find more information. And I also would love to tell people what is the URL of your blog, but I don't know how to pronounce it. So you can help us with this. Well, first and foremost, the easiest way is to go to Google and t- type in my name, uh, Eric Barker, or the or the blog's name, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, uh, and that's probably the easiest way because yes, uh, the the blog's URL is uh, is actually Japanese, uh, so it can be very difficult for some people to remember the spelling uh, or to pronounce. You pronounce it Bakadesio, and it's it's Japanese, and it's a it's a play on my last name in Japanese. And what does it literally translate to? I studied Japanese as my language in undergrad, and I found out the first day of class that my last name means moron in oh, Japanese. No. <laughs> uh, Barker becomes Baka. Baka means idiot. And uh, and and in Japanese, you usually use uh, last names. Um, and basically the way the sentence structure is saying, I am Barker and I am an idiot are the same sentence. Isn't that so, interesting? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so basically I, I did a play on that. So if you want, you can interpret my URL as I am Barker. You can interpret it as I am an idiot. They're the same thing. I, I like the I am Barker interpretation and I'm sure your classmates in this uh, course really enjoyed that also. <laughs> Um, I've never had a Japanese person forget my name. <laughs> At least that makes you memorable. That's awesome. Good. It's a definitely, an ice, definitely an icebreaker. So thanks for sharing that information on the blog and also the official URL. For product managers who are listening, let's dive into how we can help them be more successful. And obviously, these apply to others also, but for our audience of product managers and innovators, what can we do? We tend to be kind of a complicated bunch. We interact with customers a lot. We interact with people across the organization in different roles, you know, like marketing and sales and development and production and R&D and Q&A and the like. We kind of find ourselves, because we should be innovating, which means we're doing something new, if we're always following the rules, we can't really do things new necessarily. 
And so sometimes we have to figure out what rules to follow and what rules to break. So lend us some insights into what you have found about this issue of following rules versus breaking rules. Well, the, fir- the first thing I would say is uh, is that people should really get to know themselves because uh, a number of fundamental personality traits uh, research has shown do not change over time. You know, so if you are kind of a classic consummate rule breaker, uh, you know, make sure you're in an industry, a, uh, a company, a role where, you know, innovation really is going to be critical. And on the flip side, if you're somebody who's not, you know, as, as much of a rule breaker and you, you know, if you score high in the personality trait of conscientiousness, uh, you know, then you don't want to be with a, a company, a role, a product, you know, that is, that is going to require you to take these really big, you know, uh, swings into creativity outside of the, outside of the norm. So knowing yourself, knowing your job and aligning those two, I would say be the first big step. But past that, you know, we, we always need to find that balance. That's the, that's the tricky part. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the things I think that's, that's really great is, uh, Peter Sims wrote a book called Little Bets, where he talked about, Making low resource, low you know, low time commitment, low money commitment investments in creativity, in innovation. So, in other words, rather than going overboard with something that has a high risk of failure, you know, trying little things, seeing if they work, and then exploring with that. Basically, treating innovation almost like a venture capital company, a venture capital mm. firm treats investments. So you, you know that you're going to try 10 things. You understand ahead of time, seven of them are going to fail, two are going to break even, and one's going to be a great success. So rather than going whole hog in on something which you know is pretty risky and we don't understand really you know, whether this is going to succeed or not, making little attempts testing them, getting a prototype, doing a, just enough that, you know, we're not, we're not betting that, you know, we're not betting everything against mm-hmm. the house, you know, that kind of balance and just making sure consistently over time, taking that same attitude that we're spending five to 10% of our time on always trying to improve, trying these low resource investments to try and move the needle forward um, versus spending too much time on wild, eye, wild eyed ideas or spending too little where we're, we're really not moving things forward and, and things are stagnating. Yeah, right. Balance there that we're doing some things that are new and maybe uncomfortable and learning through that, but not risking everything in, in those areas. And I, I like the phrase you said, move the, need, uh, move the needle forward. You know, in product management, most organizations have some form of, of a phase gate or stage gate sort of process where we, you know, we do some work like scoping out what the problem is, you know, that we might develop a product around and then moving on to doing some further investigation around a business case. Is this really feasible or not? And then moving on to actually starting to, to develop and building prototypes and developing and the like, and that continues. And many organizations, the stage gate process is stuck in the very beginning where almost no ideas get through that first, first decision point. And then once they do, they never get killed. They, 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 we never go backward and say, well, this was not the right thing to be doing. And so they make really big bets on a few things instead of kind of adding to it, right? These low time, low resource commitments to figure out what really works and then incrementally add to that and, and keep learning. Yeah, I think this, the, <laughs> the principle I illustrated kind of turns that on its head. Um, you know, rather than, rather than 
having these things and they're they're all going to you know you're having a few things and then once they get rolling you you the momentum won't allow them to stop right you know and and maybe that means rather than simply focusing on the company's formal process having two informal steps that you use ahead of time to try and take a lot more ideas and you know do your best to try and you know look at those talk to people you know look at prior cases and you know and whittle down mm-hmm. you know a greater number of ideas to a smaller number of ideas so that that maybe you maybe that once that that train gets rolling you know you're already going to have done some 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 thinking and some innovating ahead of time yeah it's good advice and to go ahead and make these you know little bets uh earlier and uh do that work before maybe disclosing to those review groups okay another aspect of product management here is Sometimes this is just tough. It's tough to defend your ideas and to keep things going. And there's these antibodies inside the organization that kind of build up against doing things that are different. And product managers really have to have some tenacity behind them and, you know, kind of the courage to keep moving forward. What what have you learned about pushing through tough times and not quitting versus, well, this is really a time you, you need to quit and recognizing that? Yeah, the issue of grit and resilience has, you know, kind of had its day in the sun. Um, you know, everybody's really curious about grit, and with good reason, because, you know, a lot of us, uh, you know, give up on things that we, we know we shouldn't, that have long-term potential. And there's three, there's three ideas that are really well established in the literature that can help us as individuals uh, keep going when, when things seem really difficult. And the first is optimism. Um, when you look, um, there's the research by Angela Duckworth from the University of Pennsylvania, which ties into uh, the research done before her by Martin Seligman there. And that is, you know, when, it, it makes intuitive sense. When you're optimistic, when you believe things are going to work out, hey, you know, why not follow through? You know, if, if, you, if you believe that you're going to win, then you definitely will play. So first and foremost, you know, optimism is really critical. And optimism at a more granular, excuse me, granular level, optimism at a more granular level comes down to uh, three Ps, which is uh, personal, permanent, and pervasive. Hmm. When you see good things as personal, I'm personally responsible for this. You know, I'm, I'm, I did a good job. Uh, pervasive. So, you know, throughout all the work I've been doing, you know, things are, things are, things are working out. And, per, and you know, permanent. This is going to continue. Uh, we feel good when when we feel negative in terms of personal, permanent, and pervasive. That produces a pessimistic attitude, which ends up producing you know a feeling of futility. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my fault. Uh, it's you know, it's my fault. This is never going to work, and this is always this is going to fail in every arena. You know, that produces a feeling of futility and. When you continue that, uh, what the research shows is that feeling of futility can become globalized and that we have another name for futility feeling globalized, and that is clinical depression. Mm. Uh, you know, there's, there's no point in doing any of this. Um, so what you want to do is the positive things you want to see as, you know, permanent, personal, and pervasive, and the negative things you want to you argue with yourself, basically, is question the thoughts in your head. When you, when you think the bad things are personal, permanent, pervasive, you want to question them and you want to see them positively as that. So optimism is really critical in terms of producing grit. The second thing is making it a game. You know, we, we, we do a lot of things that are frustrating. We fail a lot. 
and we want to give up. But the truth is, uh, video games are often frustrating. We fail a lot, but the, but video games can be addictive. Right. So what's the difference? The difference is the framework of a game. And that often comes down to four principles, which is well, first one being winnable. First of all, games are winnable. They don't make games you can't win. And you need to feel, you need to see that the game, the process you're going through is winnable. Mm-hmm. Second thing is novelty is, you know, is good games. There's always a new level. There's always a new enemy. There's always a new challenge. You want to structure what you're doing in such a way that it does, it does have some novelty to it. There is something new because redundancy, we get tired. It feels futile. We don't want to play anymore. The third thing is goals. You want to have clear goals at, at every step. Goals always change in a, in, a, in a video game. And the fourth is feedback. You want to make sure you're getting quick feedback. Games are very good about giving you, you feedback. You know, your, your score goes up. Your score goes down. You always know where you stand in a good game versus, you know, in people's jobs, you get a, you get a review annually, <laughs> you know, right. that's, that's not a very good game. Yep. Um, so, you know, m- look, making sure that there's winnable, you have novelty, you have goals, you have feedback creates more of a game like structure, which creates that same persistence, which we see where that, that keeps us, that keeps us up at night playing a game when, when we should be sleeping. The third thing that you see in the literature in terms of grit is stories. And that is the stories we, we tell ourselves because we, we obviously can't keep every event that has ever happen, happened to us throughout our entire lives uh, does, is not easily encapsulated uh, when, we, when we talk to ourselves about our lives. So we turn everything into a story. I was born here, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Now, you may not be aware you know, consciously of your story, but you have one. You know, you have something in your head of I'm the kind of person who, you know, my journey from from school to, you know, to college, to career, to where I am now, you know, you see that in a particular way. And you see this consistently throughout the literature that uh, John Gottman, who does does the leading researcher in terms of marriages and uh, romantic relationships, um, one of the best predictors, probably the best predictor of whether a couple will divorce is how they tell their story. Is it a positive one? Did they, 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 they face challenges, but they overcame them, you know, or is it more of a negative story? And that is predictive of whether they will, you know, they will quit. They will, they will not show grit in terms of their marriage. Children who understand their family story, this is research from Emory University, uh, are less likely to do drugs. They get better grades. They feel a part of something. They feel an identification. They, they feel, this this idea of who they are and where they belong. So looking at your own story, analyzing the story you tell yourself and correcting, you know, that story you tell yourself. If you see yourself as the kind of person who is persistent, I've been persistent. Those times that I, I wasn't persistent were exceptions. Um, then you are more likely to persist in the face of challenges uh, than someone who tells themselves a, a, a downward trajectory story. So those are three things. Optimism, games and in stories those three are well established in the literature in terms of promoting uh, grit and resilience so there's some good connections here i'm seeing already so, uh, you know at the macro and micro level you know at the macro level just how we feel about ourselves and where where's our head in terms of uh, optimism and can we make the work that we're involved in a game so it feels new and something that we can win and we're getting feedback clearly and frequently 
and the stories that we tell ourselves to, you know, as you said, you know, to, to put, have grit and push through the challenges. At the micro level, you know, going back to following the rules or breaking the rules, and when you talked about making these little bets moving the needle forward, when we're on an individual product, an individual project developing a, a product, we need to be taking those little steps. And so, you know, back to the question of for as project managers on a product we're developing, you know, do we keep pushing through or do we, you know, are, are there times we should give up? And it seems like the answer to that is, you know, we need to have the own internal makeup of optimism and, and gamemanship and stories to know that we can keep pushing through as a project manager. But on a specific product, we might be making these little bets and moving the needle forward and learning information that says, well, we're going down the wrong path. And sometimes project managers, we get enamored with the solution and not with the actual problem the customer has. And we need to recognize to pull back and say, ooh, let's actually solve the customer's problem and not get enamored with our solution that maybe isn't going the right way. Absolutely. So I, I like those connections. So the, uh, that was an unexpected thread. And these are really powerful concepts that you're pulling out of uh, science research. How about another one here? Product managers really need to have influence. And you know they, they build influence based on who they know and what they've accomplished. Those two things go together. And product managers in organizations are often in a really unique role because they will have insights into these other functions in the organization that a lot of people just never see because we have to work with marketing and sales and operations and production and like in a way that others don't. And so we do have an opportunity to grow our influence, but we also have to kind of know what we're doing, be competent. So there's this, the, the old tension, maybe, I don't know if it's really a tension, but this yin yang thing between what you know versus who you know. Uh, what are your thoughts about that one? Obviously, this is really critical because, um, you know, uh, in the book, I talk about the distinction uh, between extroverts and introverts and how they deal with things. And, hmm. you know, extroverts, uh, you know, are more naturally build a network and more naturally make those connections. And and that's critical because across the board, uh, you know, the research is pretty consistent. Having a large network is really powerful in terms of getting jobs, being promoted in jobs, being uh, successful in those jobs. Uh, you can't underestimate the value of, of a large network. Uh, this is even even the research on drug dealers. Uh, drug dealers who have large networks um, are more successful uh, and less likely to be incarcerated. Hmm. So uh, across across the board, you know, network networking and having a large network is critical. On the other hand, uh, there's also research. I forget the exact uh, jargon uh, jargon that the the uh, that the academics used, but it was something along the lines of. Uh, individual extroversion was negatively correlated with individual proficiency or basically what it translated into was the more extroverted you are, the worse you are at your job. Hmm. And, and that, and that being now, of course, that's, that's on average, but, um, that being the fact that the more time you're spending talking to other people is usually time that you're not spending on individual skill development. Um, you know, uh, if you're hanging out with your friends, you know, you're, you're not hitting the books when you're in college, usually. Um, so we need to balance those two. There's, there's, there's no doubt about it. And first and foremost, again, I would say if people have the opportunity, you know, first and foremost, I would say to focus on alignment where what is, what does this job require? What does this organization require? And is that aligned with my skill set? Is this an org, is this a very large organization? 
where lots of people need to sign off on things in order for things to move forward. Uh, and it's a well-established product, you know, with, uh, with many great minds working on it. Okay, well, that's going to be much more like trying to move a bill through Congress, where knowing people is going to be probably more critical than individual proficiency. Uh, versus on the flip side, you know, if you're talking about a startup with a very small team and, and you as a product manager are also one of the developers, uh, then, you know, your ability to code, your ability to, uh, to really understand the, the product because you're part of the, the, the team making it, you know, their individual proficiency. And if it's only a startup of five, 10 people, uh, then, then networking is going to be less, you know, less critical. So understanding that, aligning yourself with an environment that, is 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 suited to your skill set uh is is initially probably the best the best thing you can do but past that you know we need to be thinking about you know how's that split going to work how are we are going to organize our time how much are we going to do in terms of you know really understanding you know the work ahead understanding the ins and outs of the product and how much time you know are we going to spend you know actually getting to know the people who can make this happen, who uh, are, are part of the team. And, you know, in the book, I go into this, the specifics of, you know, influence and, and negotiation. But, you know, what's really critical is, is making the time, listening to people, you know, because many of us don't make the time to actually develop those relationships. And we usually don't do it ahead of time. You know, you want to be able to to draw on people. You don't want to be asking people for favors who you just met. Uh, you know, so taking the time before you need it to reach out, get to know the people who can help you, you know, is is really critical. You know, it's something that we we want to be thinking of uh, probably when we start at an organization. You know, and definitely you want to be you want to be making time to support those relationships as things are ongoing. So this this difference between the introvert and extrovert probably leads to some natural tendencies towards networking versus focusing on task. I've given this advice several times to product managers before that I think if you're a new product manager to a new organization, the best use of your lunchtime is to go invite someone from another function to have lunch with you just so you can learn about their function and their role. And like you said, start, I, I do this to, you know, start making the relationships before you actually need them. Absolutely. Have you ever come across the Center for Creative Leadership? They do a lot of leadership research and leadership training. No, I'm sorry, I haven't. I think they're based in Greensboro, North Carolina, and there's a group near me in Colorado Springs and a few others. And they've been around a long, long time. And early in my career, I had this great opportunity to go do one of their leadership development programs. And it was basically six days of learning and lots of assessment. There were more people assessing us as participants than there were actual participants. But one of the research findings they shared that has stuck with me so much was um, they looked at people's career paths uh, th throughout their career, and they found a, a tipping point at the tenure mark. And so generalities, people that excelled competently had a very linear trajectory throughout their entire career, you know, 20, 30 years. People that excelled competently for the first 10 years and at the same time were building up a powerful network at that 10-year point, their their career trajectory ramped off, you know, like the hockey stick graph, you know, that we see, you know, the, the, they, they were the ones that got the promotions, they got more responsibility, they resulted in higher leadership positions in companies. And the distinction being there that you need to pay attention to both, that competency gets you so far in your career, but it's this ability to build the network 
And I, it's interesting that you pointed out that, that gangs, the research has been found in uh, crime and gangs, the same is true. You need a network. <laughs> yeah. I mean, where, wherever you go, you know, that's, it's, it's really critical to, to spend the time to get to know, uh, you know, the people that you're working with and, you know, and people who are involved with not only where you are, but where you want to be. Yep. So, so much goodness in there that you shared. For me as an engineer, this is, has often been a tension because I am uh, historically very introverted and I want to get the task done and actually have to make myself take the time to be building the relationships also. And I found that doing so is really, really valuable. I want to dive into more details in your book about that. There was one other issue I wanted to ask you about, and I see that people talk about this all the time, the work-life balance. And it's really easy as product managers, you know, my kind of my own personal drug is startups. And I'm not in a startup. And I haven't been for a while because they're frankly not particularly good for me because it's really easy to just throw yourself into that environment because you're creating something new and you're solving real problems and it feels really important. Product managers can get overwhelmed with all that too because we we like doing the work and we like adding value to people's lives. How do we think about this balance? Is, is there such a thing really as a work-life balance, you know, work outside of work and how does that help one be more successful? Well, you know, it's like right now the the issue is uh, we we have sort of a perfect storm uh, of events that works against work life balance. Where you know our our grandparents didn't really talk about work life balance. Um, you know, right now uh, anymore, you know, the doors to the office don't close at five p.m. Um, we we are always uh, available to work. Work right. is always an option. You have your your phone in your pocket. You can always check emails. Uh, you know, it's you can't say, oh, I left those documents at the office. I'll have them for you tomorrow, uh, nine a.m. No, they're available in the cloud right now. So work is always an option, and that's stressful to always having to you know to make the decision. Uh, you know, well, I could work tonight at ten p.m. if I wanted to. That's hard. And not only when you watch TV, you look on the internet, you're seeing examples of the most successful people uh, from, you know, for the top 0.001% from all around the planet, you know, as, as, as ideals to compare yourself toward. <laughs> so we have these ridiculous ideals right. and we have the ability to work 24-7 until we collapse. And, and that's sort of a perfect storm uh, in terms of what's going on with work-life balance. So, you know, so there is an answer to the work, uh, to the work-life balance question, but it's not an easy one. And that is that you need to draw your, draw the line yourself. In the past, the doors closed at 5 p.m. You're done for the day. Go home, see your friends, see your family, play with your kids. Now, the world is not going to draw the line for you. You need to draw, draw it yourself. And that means that you need to have a personal definition of success. You can't just say more. Because more, you know, is is a never ending uh, is a never ending goal, uh, you know, that can never be fulfilled mm -hmm. uh, these days. You, there needs to be a point that you establish for yourself where you say, "I'm drawing the line here." Uh, you know, if I if I don't get the promotion, that's okay. I need to spend X amount of time uh, on my with my friends, my family, my sanity. Um, so it comes down to a personal definition of success, not just more. And that's that's something that everybody needs to think about. Beyond that, uh, what you consistently see in the research, because the problem is that the research shows that the the more you work, uh, you know, the the better you do. Uh, you know, so it's it's you know it's not infinitely scalable, uh, but 
the the problem is if 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 work stopped paying off, you know, then then certainly people would be less inclined to do it. Uh, but it does. But those people who keep working, 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 their relationships are usually what suffers. Now, when uh, Nash and Stevenson, two researchers at Harvard, uh, looked at people who had done uh, a decent job. Uh, executives had done a decent job of, of finding something approximating work-life balance. What they realized was that those people uh, kept four metrics that mm-hmm. they looked at. Now, the, the problems that most people uh, are, deal with in life is that many people use what's called a collapsing metric. In other words, they have one metric to determine their success. And it's not too hard to figure out what that often is. The metric is usually dollars because dollars right. are easy, easy to count. And so you say, hey, you know, make that number go up and I'm doing well. Uh, but the problem with that is, of course, that takes no consideration into personal happiness, relationships, health. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the, the dollar goes up, but the rest of your life falls apart. Um, other people make the mistake of, of using a, a, what's called a sequencing strategy. Where they'll say, well, well, right now, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on school, and I'm gonna ignore my relationships, my health, my happiness. Uh, but then I'm, then I'm gonna, then I'm gonna go and I'm gonna work hard. I'm gonna work hard at my job, and I'm gonna ignore my relationship. And then after that, I'll focus on my relationships. And as, as we talked about uh, with the prior question, you know, relationships are, are like a garden. They need regular tending. Right. You know, you can't just kind of say, well, at this, at phase three, I'll focus on those. Because by then your your kids are going to be graduating high school and they won't know you, so you know you you can't just break things up into this sequencing structure. So when Nash and Stevenson talked to uh, to those people, they figured out that there were four metrics that people who had something people who had something approximating work life balance uh, used, and those were happiness, achievement, uh, happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy. Happiness, pretty straightforward. Are you enjoying what you're doing? Achievement, are you getting, are you achieving your goals? You're moving forward. Third is significance, is what you're doing important to, is it creating value for the people around you that you love? And fourth is legacy. Legacy is to some small degree, are you, are you making the world a better place? Are you improving the lives of, of, of others at large? And basically to look at your schedule, your, uh, your schedule in terms of a week or a month, and ask yourself, am I making deposits in all four of those buckets? Right. Because usually what happens is one bucket gets way too much and the other gets too little. If you're, if you're, if you're putting, if all of your hours on your calendar are being devoted to happiness, you might have trouble paying the rent. <laughs> and if all of your hours are devoted to achievement, uh, you may see that you're not doing much benefit to the ones you love other than paying the rent and your personal happiness might, might falter. Uh, and then we all know people who might be pretty good at happiness, might be pretty good at achievement, but you know they're not as as, as good as significance or legacy. They're they're not creating any real meaning for their lives or or benefits for the ones they love. So to look at your schedule for a week or a month and kind of look at the hours and say, is this going towards happiness? Is this going towards achievement? Is this going towards significance? Towards legacy? And just starting to get a rough idea. You know, of where you're strong, where you're weak, and then kind of starting to reallocate some of that time to make sure that all four buckets are getting fulfilled. That's a great first step towards seeing where your strengths and weaknesses are in terms of work-life balance and, uh, and, and what you need to do to move forward. It's a great balanced scorecard approach to look at, you know, four areas that have 
have importance to everyone? And are we making deposits in each one of those areas? And how are we feeling about that? And I've heard about, I've heard from people that, that they do regular check-ins, you know, with, with their wife about where, where am I on this dimension? You know, what, what can I be doing better for our relationship, right? If that's related to a happiness or a, a significance aspect. And I think it's good to be thinking about uh, how we structure our lives in such a way. So I appreciate you sharing those uh, four key metrics. There's a thread here through all this, right? So the, the topics that I had lined up, uh, you know, I wanted to dive into these specific questions with you in, in terms of how do we play it safe or break the rules about this tenacity, you know, uh, resilience issue, what we know versus who we know questions, and then thinking about this work-life balance. So many times it has come up an issue of alignment about knowing yourself, knowing the role you're in, maybe finding a role that fits who you are. And just aligning so that you're being true to yourself, but also recognizing that there might be some areas that you need to stretch in to make the role even better for you. Thoughts? Yeah, in the in the book, you know, when I when I conclude the book, I, I think that a really the the point the point I make in terms of success, because you know, so many areas of success differ widely. Mm-hmm. Um, to uh, What's something that they all hold in common? And what I say is basically knowing thyself and then picking the right pond, right? You know, and and basically aligning those two because what's really critical is if you know yourself and more more specifically, if you know your signature strengths, uh, that's uh, an academic term. Um, again, research from the University of Pennsylvania. People use their signature strengths, the things they are uniquely good at. Uh, on a regular basis, are happier, they're more successful, uh, they feel more respected. Um, the more you use your signature strengths, basically the, the happier you are. Um, knowing what those are. And then also, uh, there's uh, there's a Harvard Business School professor, Gotham Akunda, talks about intensifiers, which are qualities, personality traits, which are negative at the mean, negative on average. Uh, but in certain contexts, they can be positive. So, for example, if you're talking about entre- if you're talking about uh, the issue of being stubborn in your interpersonal relationship, stubbornness is often considered a negative, and we understand why. But for an entrepreneur, stubbornness might be vital because if you if you cave and give in, you're you're not you're not going to to make to make it. You're not gonna you're not gonna run the distance. Mm-hmm. So, understanding your signature strengths and then understanding your intensifiers. And then, you know, picking the right pond. In other words, finding an environment that values your signature strengths. Finding a unique environment that values your intensifiers. When you're, where your negatives become positives. Maybe you're argumentative. But hey, if you're a litigator, that might be a good thing. Exactly. Yep. So, so, and what becomes critical is really that issue of, you know, alignment. So people need to be thinking, and if you don't know much about where you're working, the role you're working in, or the product you'll be working on. And if you don't know your strengths and weaknesses, then it's very difficult to figure out, hey, am I going to be successful here? Do I have what it takes? So taking the time to understand your signature strengths, getting to know yourself, understanding you know, the environment you're going to be in and whether it rewards you know, your unique strengths and weaknesses – you know, that's something that's really critical. So across the board, uh, you know, as I say in the book, alignment is really important when trying to gauge and achieve success. Yeah, I like that phrase, know yourself and pick the right pond. And 
All of these insights are really useful to product managers, the everyday innovators listening, and will help us to be more successful and hopefully more happy overall in life and our jobs too. I appreciate you taking time to share those with us. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes, and I always ask guests to bring one and uh, share why you picked that one. Uh, what's the one that you thought of for us? A quote I like, and this is kind of a different take on innovation, mm-hmm. but is uh, uh, the science fiction writer William Gibson has a quote that he said, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And basically what he's saying is that you know, very often the the technologies of the future or the ideas of the future, you know, they're already here, but they're not everywhere. You know, it's the we. So for me, this this idea was really critical in the sense that uh, the thing, the issues I explore in my blog, the issues I explore in 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 the book, um, you know, these are there are answers to many of the questions we want in terms of happiness, success, productivity, relationships, but they're locked up in academic journals or they're in the, the heads of experts and they haven't been widely disseminated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I take it upon myself to to try and, you know, make those more easily available. And I would all but I would also say it's relevant in terms of, uh, you know, for your audience in terms of, you know, everything does not need to be like, you know, uh, mined and drilled out of the ground. Sometimes, you know, those fresh ideas, they're already there, but those people aren't being listened to. Those reports aren't being read. Uh, those, those other companies that could be wonderful examples and case studies aren't being looked at. You know, sometimes the future's already here, but the, the ideas just haven't made, made it to us yet. So we need to make the effort to really look around and see where these questions have already been answered. Love the quote. And sometimes things pop up in, in unexpected places and unexpected ways also. So thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, tell listeners again where they can find out more about your work, your blog, uh, where they can find your book, and any other information you want to leave with us. Yeah, uh, the the book is Barking Up the Wrong Tree. It's uh, available on Amazon if you plug in Barking Up the Wrong Tree or Eric Barker. And uh, the blog is also Barking Up the Wrong Tree. If you just put into Google uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree blog or put my name, Eric Barker, into Google, uh, it'll it'll take you right there. The best way to keep up with uh, what I'm doing, I, I produce a, a another a long form article based on research on uh, on you know on improvement uh, every week is to sign up for my email newsletter, which uh, goes out once a week. Excellent, thanks. And I will put the links to those too, including the links to the email newsletter, into the show notes so people can find those. And Eric, I really appreciate the insights, the time that you have taken to convert some of the science, which is a little bit out of reach for a lot of people, into practical tips for helping all of us to be more successful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Chad. Thanks for listening. If you're finding value in this podcast, I know others will also. And the best way for them to find out about it is through you. So please take a moment and just share this podcast with others on social media. That's really easy. Just go to where the show notes for this episode are. That's the everydayinnovator.com slash 138. And at the top of the page, you'll see some buttons to share this on your favorite social media network. Really appreciate you doing that. You'll find that information at the show notes area, as well as information about how to become a product master. Again, that's the everydayinnovator.com slash 138. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.